Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. So I'm going to do some talking about Jewish community and racial identity and Jews of color and all the things that are in my specific area of expertise. I'll talk some. Please feel free to interrupt with questions. If I can take them while we're talking, we'll take them while we're talking. If I can't, we'll parking lot them for later. Um, and I look forward to the questions and answers and conversation because really that's really the most interesting part of what I do. Um, by way of background, um, and it's funny, listening to my bio, so my daughter, God willing, turns 13 tomorrow. And really, I'm just embarrassing more than anything. Um, sure, my daughter turns 13 tomorrow, God willing. And so um, she, I hear all of these things that you say about me. And really, I just like try not to be embarrassing to her. Um, and she just thinks I'm like just the weirdest, strangest parent. Like it's exactly right what's going on in her 13-year-old world. And so I appreciate the kind introduction. So I grew up in San Francisco, California. Um, and I will just say by way of background, my mother was raised in upstate New York, in Buffalo, New York, uh, by parents from Poland and Romania. And my father is from uh, Texas City, Texas, uh, kind of like 45 minutes southeast of Houston. And my father was raised in an all-black town. And my grandparents, like when I would go visit Texas, and I started to visit Texas when I was seven, um, I would go from San Francisco, which is its own unique, skewed very weird environment in a lot of ways. You don't realize how skewed it is until you go somewhere else. Um, and so I'd go from San Francisco to uh, Texas City, Texas, in an all-black town where my grandparents had like a beloved Methodist church that they belonged to, and there were Baptists in the family, and we would sort of spend time in these like all-black, all-Christian environments. And the amazing thing was is that my grandmother, um, who was an enlightened person, she was just an enlightened person, she, when we were seven, I have a twin, so that's why I say we. Um, when my brother and I were seven and my mother called, my father was not involved in our life, but when she called my grandmother to say, like, it's time for the kids to have some religion, my grandmother just said, like, I don't care what faith they are as long as they believe in God. And so my mother was like, well, then we will just be walking right up to Hill to the synagogue <laughs> and we will start their education. Um, I spent 20 years as a high school administrator and classroom teacher, and then I retired from that life because I wanted to spend more time with my daughter. And I have spent the last eight or nine years working inside of the Jewish community. And when I say inside, I mean, I will talk a lot about inside and outside, and it's both real and metaphoric. Um, but inside is like the traditional world where our synagogues are in the directory, right? And we can find our Jewish community centers. And if we're looking for Jewish community resources, we have connections and networks about where to find them. So that's what I'm talking about, kind of inside the ecosystem. And my training in the Jewish organizational world was actually the San Francisco Jewish Community Federation and Endowment Fund. And so I come from kind of like the most traditional, most square environment you can find. And I spent um, several years, a number of years, doing um, all the grant making for uh, Marin County and Sonoma Counties in Northern California. 
And my core, I was like the program officer who funded day schools. And I was like the program officer who funded JCCs. And I was like the program officer that funded synagogues. And so just kind of like the bread and butter of the Jewish community in that way. In about like 2015, um, black men were being killed in the streets. And I was literally inside the building of the Jewish Federation, pressed up against the window, watching marches go by my window, kind of wondering what I was doing inside of there. And unclear why we were all inside, and nobody was outside marching. Unclear why this people who are involved in social action and social justice just didn't even, like, no, like just watch the march go by, and nobody was motivated to even wonder what was going on. You know, if I could just connect Jewish community philanthropy and racial justice in a Jewish way, I will have done something good in the world. This was, and so we'll thumbtack that. Um, so my work, I run this national initiative called the Jews of Color Field Building Initiative. And it's a new initiative in the country funded by a number of Jewish communal philanthropies across the nation. And we focus on three things. I run the country's only philanthropic fund for Jews of color. And so for black, Asian, Latino, um, native, multiracial Jewish people, um, I fund things like leadership development, fellowships, organizational development, executive coaching, board development, all of the infrastructural pieces that make a community strong. I fund leaders and I fund the containers that make them successful. The second thing that I do is I'm responsible for major community education initiatives. And so in April, I will deliver the nation's newest since 2002-2003 demographic study of Jews of color. Um, we don't have that resource. So when people say, like, Ilana, you keep you know, advocating for Jews of color, and I'm not clear that there are many of you, um, sometimes we need data to just demonstrate our validity. And so that's a project that's on my plate. And then I spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time working with foundations, federations, boards, um, network leaders, helping them, quite frankly, shift their paradigm from one that is based on the idea that most Jews reflect what my mother looks like, who's white, um, to a paradigm where here in the United States, starting to shift the idea that we are a multiracial Jewish community and exploring what that means. And so that's kind of the pivot point of my work. And this idea that, because you know, my hypothesis is, and the data will prove out, I'm pretty certain, in April, right now, somewhere between 11 and 30% of the Jewish community are not white, look like me, right? And so let's, you know, something like between 11 and 30% right now, and the absolute lowest number is 11%. The absolute lowest number out of Brandeis Steinhardt is uh, 11%, and that was in 2013. Hang on, and I'll come right to you. Um, and so let's say that number, the lowest number is real, then that means somewhere if the Jewish people are something like 5.2 million in the US, then that means something like 650,000 Jews of color are missing from the community at a minimum. And I want to frame it that way, right? Something like 650,000 of our people are missing from this room, from our organizations, from our traditional spaces. Yes, sir? I was just asking, is that with worldwide numbers, or is that just US? That's just US. 40% of the world's Jews are here. 40% are in Israel. 20% are around the rest of the world. Yeah. 
would that be based upon self-identification, some sort of darker complexion, someone of, of color in their, in their history? What would that be? That's a great question. So that data is set up in a traditional kind of US structure of racial identity. So it's somebody who self-identifies in the survey process that they are a person of color. Having said that, all of our kind of Jewish communal data comes from what we in the social science space look at as very traditional uh, spaces like looking at JCC rosters, looking at synagogue rosters, looking at federation rosters. If we know the traditional organizations already don't represent the diversity of the Jewish community, we could have said that about the LGBTQ community like 10 years ago, we could say that about other identity groups, um, then those numbers come from places that already under-report or under-represent the diversity of the Jewish people in the US. That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, so working backwards, we know that the Jews of color in sort of in a grand scale are not in tradition or not represented or are not self-reporting in traditional spaces. So we use that as an assumption going into procuring the data. Not every traditional Jewish communal research firm believes that they don't have the accurate data, right? So that's just one sort of major point, which is when I was interviewing research houses, one of them said to me, what do you mean there's data other than the data we already have? And I was like, oh, this is going to, this, just the process itself is going to be rich. And so, you know, what we did was we picked, a, we picked one of our amazing colleague universities out there, and, and uh, we'll, come out, we'll be more public about it in a couple of months. Um, but part of that team has a team of specialists on there who work for the U.S. Census, specifically around hidden populations. And so one of the teams in their proposals assumed that Jews of color are hidden in some way, just based on the fact that we're not represented in the traditional ecosystem. And so they added to their research team hidden populations experts. And so here's where Jews of color are if we're not in traditional space. So you have people like me who like grew up with a white mom, right? We went to synagogue starting at age seven. And so I have some comfort and I have some facility in the traditional Jewish world. I also work in this space and so I have some comfort and familiarity like I flew in today not knowing that Nancy Drapin was here. Um, and she's a colleague of mine from Marin County, and she works in this community. And so I have, some, um, I have some tailwinds that help push me in in ways that are easier. Um, for our Jews of color who are not in these spaces, we go to grassroots community spaces. And so you, we go to spaces where there's grassroots community organizing going on around racial justice themes, around LGBTQ themes, around, I mean, the Women's March, and we can have a different conversation about that, but around environments that are, are coalescing people around progressive themes. Jews of color are overrepresented in those environments as compared to these environments, and so that's part of the way we go is like, where, where are people who care about social justice if they felt marginalized or pushed out from a traditional space? They go somewhere where they feel welcome. Um, and so organizations that are working around racial justice, for example, are overpopulated with Jews of color relative to these our more traditional spaces. And so we're going into all those spaces, um, and then people have to be able to self-identify. So that's the other thing, um, and that's how we'll come up with some of the new data. So why does it matter that we are thinking about these issues of Jewish community racial diversity, looking at it through a lens of justice and equity? It matters, I mean, number one, 
from the question in the back, 40% of the world's Jews are here in the United States. And up until 2016, 2017, I think it's fair to say, based on working in the community, hanging out with my colleagues, I think it's fair to say that for the most part, and I'll sort of put this, I mean, and we can talk about sort of labels of racial identity, but for the most part, white Jews enjoyed some level of comfort in the United States that came with the cost of assimilation. So I'm not always going to say assimilation is a great thing. Um, but as Jews assimilated after 1940, 1950, 1960 in the United States, as Jews settled in and were able to, in some ways, with upward mobility, choose to kind of hide you know, traditional expressions of Jewish identity, the threat of anti-Semitism did not go away. But the current of pointed anti-Semitism was easier to deflect when we as a community did not feel under attack. And when we didn't feel under attack because people were not identifying us as a target group in that kind of robust way. It's, this discussion matters because after 2016, 2017, after Charlottesville, and certainly after Pittsburgh, we are very, very clear that our US Jewish community is part of a much more robust multiracial US community that we're not entirely part of, or integrated into, or in deep relationship with. And what I mean by that is this. If we step back and think about sort of what do we as US Jews, and especially, you know, for in some ways I think like in the multiracial millennia that we're about to enter into, you know, by 2042, half of the United States is gonna look like me some version of a person of color. And so there is, um, I look forward to going to synagogue and having there be a diversity of people in that space. I know not everybody does, and I'm not gonna say that that's because of racism. I'm gonna say because like racial transition creates a lot of anxiety in a country, and it just does. And so part of you know, what we're dealing with in a US Jewish community is in the United States, our common ground with our neighbors is our citizen relationship to each other. What do I mean by that? And this is not about Israel, but I want to say Israel is not what protects U.S. Jews to be safe in the United States as Jews living our lives out loud as Jews. What keeps Jews in the US safe is the US Constitution that guarantees our right to freedom of religion and freedom of, of expression of religion. That US Constitution also keeps women safe, people of color safe, our voting rights safe, our access to civil rights safe. I mean, and that's questionable, so like we can get into that too. This is a slippery time. Um, but the context suggests that if we really, really focused on our citizen relationships, our neighbor relationships, our ally relationships, we as a Jewish community would see ourselves reflected in more diversity and in more spaces, and we would have allies and colleagues in relationship with us as we are experiencing what is a very, very, very difficult political social time. Why else does it matter that we see ourselves as a multiracial community? I want to talk about just this room for a second, right? And this is not a criticism. I want to raise this up. If 40% of the world's Jews are here, and something like the data tells us, something like, I don't know, if you're in California, like 10% of Jews affiliate traditionally in traditional organizations. Um, if you move further east, it gets up to like 20, 30, 
But if sometime in the next 5, 10, 15, and 20 years, our US-based Jewish community is going to start to look more and more and more like me, if we are going to have more and more people of color in our families, as our friends, as our shul neighbors, then we have to develop both the capacities as individuals and the capacities in institutions to navigate multiracial community. And we haven't done that yet here in the US. Um, Professor Mark Dollinger just wrote a book called Black Power, Jewish Politics. It's a, it's a dense historical read for anybody who wants to get into it. Um, but the whole thesis of the book is that the, the civil rights narrative of kind of Jews helping blacks was not quite that neat and tidy. And it was not quite kind of that um, blacks were just having such a hard time. And if Jews hadn't come, we would not have been uplifted. It's not quite that. Um, that's not exactly the, the texture of the reality. Um, but if we can't talk about that, and then we can't talk about the experiences of people of color in our own Jewish community as people of color, if we can't start to build our own mindsets and trainings and ways of thinking and being in ways that are more multiracial, then our community will start to deteriorate. And our community will start to go to places where people of color feel safe, where women feel safe, where the LGBTQ community feels safe, but doesn't that, shouldn't that be inside the Jewish community? Shouldn't it be inside the Jewish community that we can come into our, our holy spaces and feel some level of racial consciousness? You know, it's interesting. I was reading this book, Black Power, um, Jewish Politics, and there's a section in there that talks about uh, Soviet Jewry and how the Black Power movement inspired the activism behind the US Jewish response to Soviet Jewry, like the protesting and the, uh, and the marches and all of those things came out of a civil rights energy propelled by black power. And I'm reading this book, and I'm remembering being in religious school and marching to the Soviet consulate in San Francisco to free Soviet Jews. And I was recalling, I lived in a very poor neighborhood growing up in San Francisco that was all African American for the most part. And it was the 80s, and there was drugs, and there was poverty, and there were all the things. And I was recalling kind of the irony of what it means to have been in this body, living in my neighborhood, growing up as an African-American person who's Jewish, marching to free Soviet Jews, but nobody ever talked with me about my own experience. Nobody ever talked with me about the racism I was experiencing. No one ever talked with me about poverty in my neighborhood and what it meant. Nobody ever talked to me about the systems I was caught up in because I was not white. And I felt a little deceived, to be honest with you, as an adult reflecting on the experience. And I felt a little bit angry. Um, and I wonder if we think about all of our young people coming up, especially as our young people are becoming more and more racially diverse, what kind of spaces do we want them to come into as they're navigating their own multiracial Jewish lives and their own multiracial Jewish worlds. And the last thing I'll just say around that piece is this. Like I mentioned, my daughter, Noah, will be turning 13, God willing, tomorrow. Um, she's thinking a lot about racism. She's brown, she has big hair. She likes to wear her Black Lives Matter t-shirt. I feel terrified for her every day when she wears that in public. 
But she's thinking a lot about racism and her own development as a young woman. And she's like preparing for her bat mitzvah in April and all of these things. I would love it if I could rely on our Jewish community to talk with her about racism from a Jewish context. I would love it if she could come in from her Berkeley public school where all kinds of dynamic things are happening and it can be aligned with in her Jewish world. I would love it if she can delve into her parsha for her bat mitzvah and whatever comes up for her as a young woman of color who's super proud of being Jewish, that it flows naturally as part of her own experience. We are not quite there yet in terms of the way our institutions think about multiracial identity and the way our individual leaders think about our multiracial Jewish community. And we're not there yet in terms of understanding that our young people are coming in with these super engaged, super dynamic lives. They're super excited to be Jewish and they want it all to be whole. And it's so important that we not separate them from themselves, but we create spaces where they can come in as whole people and thrive in that multiracial Jewish identity. And then I'm gonna come right there. And their friends who are not people of color, they're all in relationships, right? Like our white kids have friends who are black. Our black Jewish kids have friends who are Jewish and Asian. And so we wanna keep them in their Jewish community friend group instead of thinking like white kids are gonna have one experience because of color. We want everybody to be whole and have it here inside the Jewish community. Yeah. Is she mature enough to know that she has to ask? If she would like it, you would like it, but she has to ask. So the question is like, is she mature? Let it be known that that's what she needs, sure. And we also gotta let it be known that for the most part, our kids who are not kids of color, this is their entitlement. And I don't mean that in a charged way. When they walk into the shul, they see clergy who reflect them. They see family structures that reflect them. They see Ashkenormative references, references that are based on Ashkenazi identity. They see Ashkenormative references that reflect them. I want every Jewish kid, every Jewish adult, every Jewish elder to walk into a space and feel like it's resonant and reflective of them. For some, we're still having to ask, and I want to hold a standard where everybody should have that experience. And that's, that's the standard to which I want to hold our, our clergy and our administrative staff in that way. Any other questions before? Curiosities, wonders. By saying a myth in this country is that we're all equal. Right. Once you say that person of color is different, you're, you're creating a separation. And the inequality disappears. Maybe, maybe that somebody isn't that Right, right, right. I mean, so the myth in this country that we're all equal. I mean, and the myth is that we all grow up thinking that we share the same myth, <laughs> right? Right? Um, it's so interesting. Um, I'm in a 10-part learning session right now around a particular section of Talmud, the Baba Kama, and I'm looking at the structures of repayment um, based uh, to see if I can't tease out a structure around responding to racial injustice. So that's my, that's my meta purpose. And then to your point, so I was studying this week, and it started to occur to me, if you look at the way that tractate is laid out, 
And if you look at the dynamics of discussion, if a man quarrels with another man, then there will be this response. If a man quarrels with another man and his wife intervenes and something happens, there's another response. If a man strikes a slave and the slave, boom, dies right there, there's a particular response. But if the slave survives two days, <laughs> then there's a different response. My point is this. We have a traditional structure and framework to think about context. Context. And we have a traditional structure and framework to think about my relationship to you as legislated by law, right? And so if we were to go way, way back, and I mean this in the most loving way, there was a time when you were a full person and I was three-fifths of a person. There was a time where I actually had no voting rights or no value as a woman, and as a black woman in particular. I'm not saying we should dwell on that to create conflict. I'm saying let's talk about that because your life pathway and my life pathway are different because of that. And we don't need to have animus between us because of that difference. I want to talk about that difference in a way that brings us closer so that we can work together as a Jewish community to lift everybody up. But if we don't talk about that context, we make assumptions about people's experiences, and they're just not true. Rabbi Shmuley inviting us into conversation together. I mean, right, the, I would, and, I, I, and I would raise that up and say, like, for those of us who are in positions where we can bring, convene people, where we can convene conversations, where we can hold some holy space of trust. So, well, I mean, and I, I, mean I've, I, do, I talk with people in a lot of schools. Who brings it up? I mean, it's the senior clergy and the president on the board who are committing to having the conversation and then making this road as we walk. It's not easy, but like I have been working with synagogues and all kinds of organizations where in a shul setting, it's the senior rabbis and the board chair who are saying, this is important, and this is important even if in our region we don't have that many people of color or Jews of color. It's important because our community is in a larger context and we need to take a leadership position about it. And the other thing that they're saying is it's important and we don't have all the answers. And it's not always going to be elegant when we're having the conversation. But are we, as a community, in relationship with each other to the point where we can talk together? So you're saying that the leaders of the congregation yes. are bringing it up, not upstairly about the congregation. Mm, it's happening. It's um, bottom up and top down. And so usually, I mean, to be very honest, it's from a disgruntled or upset family or shul goer who tried to go to synagogue and they were either racially profiled and a lot happened after Pittsburgh around this particular situation. Um, so sometimes it's from the ground up and it's a family who's got a kid in like the childhood, early childhood education environment or um, a parent who's been mistaken as a nanny when they're picking up their child, a parent of color who's been mistaken as a nanny. And then at some point those congregants are talking with the clergy and a discussion happens where the clergy their consciousness is really very raised. Um, and then they're bringing it up with their boards. And so it's coming from some sort of community pain. And then it's the senior leadership who's responding with, because the senior leadership has to respond with policies, with practices, with you know, points of view about this. And the most important thing a, you know, a senior leadership team has to do is to say this is important to us. Um, and we're going to carve out some space because we know it's important to you, the congregants. It's a great question. Yes, please. So the kind of conversation you've just been discussing about um, excuse me, the invisible people of color. Um, everything you've said in the last half hour, I was doing, gosh, 35 years ago for people with disabilities. Sure. Because they
Sure. Sure. Right, right, right. Would you see it being a larger conversation, or do you think that it's better to have these separate ones? Because then I start worrying about competing. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Let's pretend that there's no paucity of resources, right? Like, let's do that as as a way to start, right? Well, the irony is just that like there is no paucity of resources. There really is not in this community. So I think we have to do two things at the same time, right? One is we have to remember that all of our people who have, have had marginalized identities are still dealing with issues of being marginalized. It may be that different groups are more included in ways that are more elegant, but we cannot, cannot forget that anybody who's not been part of kind of a dominant, um, a dominant structure of the DNA of an organization is what I would say. Then we just know like if you're not part of the original thinking, then you're not part of the planning. Right? There's no wheelchair. And this is not a criticism, but I'm just saying, like, when you conceive of an environment, it reflects the values and the scope of that time. And so we want to not forget that people are always feeling that they're out on the margin and not in the center. And then, particularly around racial justice, we also want to say, like, we recognize that Jews of color, we have not yet had this conversation. So we want to carve out some committed resources in some kind of way to hold that conversation safe for a while. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. And then at some point, the leadership has to recognize that we're dealing with the same meta issues, right? We have a diversity problem, meaning just recognizing the kinds of differences in our community, number one and affirming the kinds of differences that are in our community. Number two, we have an inclusion problem, right? There are people with different perspectives, backgrounds, life experiences, what have you. They're not all here. Where are they? That's our inclusion question. Number three, we have an equity problem. Once we've identified who should be here, once we've tried to bring folks in, does each one of us ultimately have the same access to Torah? Like if that's our end deal, does each one of us have a safe pathway in, the same opportunity to access the intellectual structures and knowledge we need to engage, the same tools and resources to participate, and the same opportunity to our, our, our birthright, our community right of Torah. And Torah is a metaphor for everything, right? So that's number three, equity. And number four, I would suggest maybe even the most important, which is are there practices and policies in place to ensure that when goodwill runs dry, <laughs> or when good intentions run dry, or when we're just like distracted and the board meeting's gone on too long and people want to go home, do we have tools in place to ensure that we're making things equitable, that we're being inclusive, that we've remembered the diversity of everybody who's there, so that our policies and our practices can transcend our personalities and can transcend kind of each moment and be durable over time? So that's my big answer to that question. Yes. 
parts that I hear at least. Do you mind? I can hear names. I don't hear so well either, so it's fine. There's two parts that I that I hear. One of them is the visual. So if somebody's handicapped, somebody's a woman, somebody's a different color than me, those are all visual. But there's also listening to you, there's the there's the divisiveness of language. And so much of the terminology is um, it doesn't pull in, it pushes people out. Yeah. So when I hear people of color, for example, I have a color too. Right. Okay, and um, when I hear about discrimination, like you said, there was a point in American history when in the Constitution the deal was made in the South that a, that a, a slave counted for two-thirds of a, a vote. It was a, okay. But my family was in Europe dying right. in pogroms. Right. So I wasn't, right. I wasn't privy to that. They were starving there. Right. They were basically enslaved themselves. So I, I, one doesn't one doesn't outweigh the other. That's right. Um, and, and as a woman, um, having grown up in a, in a culture that excluded women, there's those factors too. What, I guess that's a longish share to get to the point. Yeah. But but my feeling is is where where do you find the way to transcend the tendency all groups have to victimhood, which is unhealthy. Right. And and to see to see people as people because nobody is no group is all wonderful. There are always right. people Yeah. Yeah. And, and and when you break it down by ability and interest and personhood, you get past it. I have no answer. That's a great question. Yeah, no, it's, I love it. Um, you know, it's so interesting because part of it is around a paradigm, and you know, like. I think some people, there, and we can break it up into eras and decades, and I want to be very careful about grouping people. Um, and you can see me trying to be like at least cautious with language. Um, there was a time where it was enough to just, to just want to celebrate diversity. And the celebration of that diversity was often at the cost of really honoring, well, it was often um, positioned that we were celebrating diversity but maintaining a, a priority identity. Right? And so we think about like living in a Christian normative culture around Christmas. And sure, we talk about Hanukkah, we talk about Kwanzaa, we talk about all the things, but really we live in the United States and we all know we're going to just have to endure, I'm projecting, Christmas for a while. Right? I think in a lot of ways, Jews of color feel like we have to endure being in a very white space in the Jewish community. And I think that's kind of a big interesting piece around this is um, how do we not fall into stereotypes? but allow people to bring their multiracial, diverse selves into the space in an authentic way, right? And it's interesting, when Obama was elected president, I have to tell you, it was very, and I didn't know this was gonna happen, right? It was very powerful for me and my daughter and our family to see the aesthetic of the White House changing. Like who was invited to the galas and the art that was up and the kind of music that was being played at the like presidential balls. And for me, I was like, oh, oh my goodness, like, it's like a cool drink of water. Not at the cost of not liking the previous culture in there, 
but I had not yet been exposed to an environment that affirmed my own identity in that way. And as the president of the United States, it's kind of amazing. So I think it becomes like, how do we open up the aesthetic of our community and sort of the core tools of our community and the opportunities to leadership in our community to simply to be um, more authentically open, number one, accessible, number two, and then like in some ways, and this is a hard question for us in terms of like traditional Judaism, right? How do we maintain the pillars of traditional Jew Judaism, Jewish faith, Jewish identity, Jewish culture, 5,000 years old, in an evolving multiracial dynamic, multi-identity context? That's the conversation we all need to be having, right? Like to acknowledge we have a multiracial, multi-identity context, and then to talk about like how do we rock our history and our culture and our faith and our religion and Torah and text how do we actually do that in this US context? I don't think we've had that conversation yet. So I don't know the exact answers. I do know like if we actually had that conversation, it would net something robust and really, really interesting. Um, and I think that's important. I think it's very important. And yeah, we have to. We really have to. Are you saying moving past social action to social justice? This is a great question. Am I saying moving past social action to social justice? Yes. Yes, and so the other thing I wanna say is more and more Jewish community entities that I'm working with are having the conversation, are we talking about social action or are we talking about social justice? Like are we really talking about things, uh, systems of equity? Are we talking about systems or are we talking about attitudes and behaviors and beliefs? Do I want my community to engage in social action because it's good for them? Or do I want my community to engage in social justice because it's good for us? No, it's not either or, and it's a continuum, and on some days we're gonna do social action, on some days we're gonna do social justice, and on some days we're like just gonna like sit and be in community together and get to know one another. Um, but they are different, and community leaders are starting to have that conversation, because the other thing they don't wanna do is over-promise. Our community's involved in social justice. We're like gonna create radical change, and they're like, oh, that's not what we meant. <laughs> we want our community to be meaningfully engaged in things that really matter. So I think that's a very astute question. Rabbi Shmuley. Um, one of the things that I find powerful about community is that you, you assume you share traumas and glories, right? You have a shared narrative of what matters. And if there's a terrorist attack in Israel, for example, you know you walk in and everyone's going to be like, oh, this is terrible, what happened? Or if somebody that feels a part of the Jewish story, you feel like, and so um, when, there's, when there's racial justice in society, and a person of color shows up, and they're so affected by something that's happened, and they look around and no one else even knows totally. to feel something happen. It, it's hard to feel like this is my community. Right. You know, and so obviously there's a part because um, a white person just won't be as naturally affected, or I mean, ideally they should be, but won't not, uh, is likely to be not as effective or even know the news of what happened, right? So, so there's the part of how that community has to change. But how would you, how would you counsel Jewish person of color who feels like, wow, our traumas and glories are really different. I want to be a part of this community. But because of that factor, I feel, meaning the factor is not inclusion within the community. I feel included here. But because of the racial, racial justice component of society not being shared, I feel like it's not helped. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Go ahead and add something. Do you want to add anything? Okay. Yeah, no, I think that makes great sense. I mean, and it's, I mean, it's nuanced, right? So, first of all, I mean, we want to always test our assumptions that any one of us feels included in our communities. 
any one of us, for whatever reason, I think it's an assumption. We know what we think traditional Jewish spaces look like when they're welcoming. We have traditional expressions of welcoming in the Jewish community. Um, but we need to constantly be testing, do you feel welcome, do you feel welcome, do you feel welcome, do you feel welcome? And in what ways do you feel welcome and what made you feel welcome? So that's the first thing. Because I want back to the, I think we overestimate how comfortable everybody feels. Um, and I think we overestimate and we project this idea that a certain tier of people always feel comfortable in a traditional Jewish space, and I think that doesn't serve us, right? Because then it becomes a red herring for like what inclusion looks like and welcoming looks like, and it's just not, it doesn't transcend the boundaries. I see you, I'm coming to you, hang on. Um, but the other thing I wanna say is, the same way that I, you know, I invite communities to come into their space and wonder, where are my Jew Jewish uh, brothers and sisters of color this evening if they're not here? Just to wonder, oh, we have, there are Jewish people of color out there. Why aren't they here tonight? Where are they? Reflexively, so that we always know people are missing. You know, are our elders here tonight? Are our young people here tonight? Is there, are our LGBTQ members here tonight? Do we create a way everybody can be here? And if they're not here, I want to I register inside of me that they're missing. I want each one of us to have that feeling that we are incomplete without our whole family here. So that's the other thing. Then I want to raise it up even further, and I want to say we need to come up with language that invites people to participate in versus participate out. And so when something racially unjust happens in the United States, when something like terribly anti-Semitic and violent happens in the United States, I want to encourage us to come up with language that, that acknowledges trauma, not based on any one experience or observation, but based on the fact that I know that we share an experience of trauma somewhere, and if I create language that's too narrow, something terrible happened this week to black people, Alana, you must be feeling a certain way. I may or may not, right? Like, I may just be working today. I might feel my feelings later, who knows? Um, but we want to say like, there's a lot going on in the US today that's, that, for, that I experience as trauma. How are you doing? Then you might say, like, I'm feeling trauma too for this totally different reason. Oh, and then we share an experience around that. But we haven't put boundaries around it that limit the conversation. We elevate the concepts to invite people into the conversation. So part of this is pedagogic, if you will. And it's about how we frame an entry point we frame the language and we invite people in versus narrow, 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 narrow. Because then the other thing that happens that you pointed out creates a shortage or at least like the perception of shortage of paucity, then I'm gonna fight for that space. Like if we're only talking about one kind of trauma today, I'm gonna fight for that trauma conversation. We don't need to do that. We can elevate that question and raise it up. Yes. There's so much division within the white Jewish community. Uh, sit down for a second. Um, I have wonderful family members, and they will not eat in my home. Say no more. <laughs> not that they don't love me, and I don't love them. She can, it's your turn with the mic. Uh, yeah, I'm going to give the mic. there's so much division within the, uh, the Jewish community, the white Jewish community. There's so much division with white Jewish families. Uh, I have wonderful uh, nieces and nephews that would not eat in my home. And they love me, I love them, we get along fine. So that's division right there, and we're not even talking right. uh, race division. Right, right. I, I have another, yeah, I don't, there's no answer to that. But I have another question, yeah. and I've been wondering about this for many years. Why would our president, um, Barack Obama, be considered black? Because he has a white mother, same with you. Why is he black? 
Okay, well, I'm a, yeah, I can't answer for. And there was a comedian once who said, I don't know which side of the I mean, I can't answer for the, the president, um, I, but I can answer as a historian, as a social scientist. I can answer as a historian, a social scientist, and someone who lives in this. In, I mean, we live in a country that's stratified by race, right? And we live in a country that's entire structure was based on racism. And I'm not saying that in some sort of like trying to elicit conflict. I'm just like, as, these are the facts, right? And so there was a time where one drop of black blood made you black. We put in every system and structure of the United States behaviors around those structures. And so it's up to any individual to self-identify however they want. And next to that, each one of us lives in a US context that has provided us some information about how we are identified. Those identities have then um, been partnered with redlining, for example, housing, for Jewish Americans, access to colleges and universities, um, and fraternities and sororities, for example. Yeah, no, no, but this is my point, right? So it's like, you can, we cannot, like, on the one hand, each one of us has the right to self-identify however we want. And on the other hand, and there are many, many hands, we live in a, in a structure that has a very, very real relationship with racial identity and racial stratification based on that identity. And to not understand that means that like we cannot, back to one of our questions, if we don't understand that as a community, then how are we gonna talk about like why I had to live on one side of a street and other people got to live on another side of a street and our opportunities for upward mobility, for example. And that's just like, we should be able to talk about those things as community and as colleagues in informed ways. Um, the last thing I wanna say is there's this great, um, there's a social scientist, her name is Maria P. P. Root, and she wrote um, this document called The Bill of Rights of Mixed Race People. And her point is like, there are going to be times, and, I'll, and, and I, for myself, you know, when I'm presented with a, a form that requires me to identify which box to check, growing up most of my life, there was, there was no box for me. The, our technical category was called other non-white. And like, I'd look at black, I'd look at white, there was Asian and maybe Latino at the time, or Hispanic, and then other non-white. And so you were forced to choose which one you were, and it had everything to do with my test scores, my opportunities for high school, like all of the things that come from that. And so we also have to do this very careful dance with what it means to self-identify as people of color in a context where like, you know, with the US Census, there are things that happen as a result of the US Census in this country. And the NAACP argues that multiracial black Americans should not identify as multiracial because it will dilute the resources and opportunities for black Americans. And so, I mean, it's not the right answer, but like that's some texture on the, on the question. Yeah. But that happens in the Jewish community yes. all the time. Yes. I think the numbers say that the reform community is the largest Jewish community, but when you see anything on TV, you usually see ultra-Orthodox people. Right. And I don't look like that. That's right. And my, Parents don't dress like that. Right. So I'm offended by that. Sure, sure. And what's the value of projecting that particular imagery and like what's the media trying to do with that? I think that's a great, I love that. Yeah. What else? We're like right kind of on the edge here. Yes. What's your advice to me as a white man in regards to people of color who support um, anti Semitic people of color? So let's say. We're talking about Farrakhan? 
Okay, let's <laughs> I mean, are you being are you are you being polite? <laughs> Black pastor over here, all friends with the dragons together, and he's constantly talking about how great Jericho is. Now, I can't tell a person of color what person of color to support or not support. That's not my role. But I also can't partner with someone who's going to openly support That's right. That's right. So, what's my role in that? To, in I love this question, and I'm also like this morning, Jane Eisner from The Forward, there's a huge article, I haven't read it yet. Yeah, there's a huge article in The Forward about Farrakhan, and I think the headline is something like, we can no longer tolerate Farrakhan. Or it's like something like dramatic. And I'm like, who's tolerating Farrakhan? So the first thing I want to say is this, like we're going to talk about your neighbor pastor, because that's like a very intimate relationship. But in the big picture, so here's what I want to say. First of all, the black community, the African-American community knows who the anti-Semites are in the African-American community. And the African-American community largely does not support the anti-Semites in the African-American community. And then we can, let's just talk specifically about Farrakhan, for example, as a figurehead and as like a metaphor and as a real person. So um, there have been many Facebook threads about Farrakhan. And I have this funny Facebook thread that has like 500 people of color and 500 white people on it. And probably... 300 of the people of color are Jewish, is my guesstimate while we're sitting here talking. It's amazing. It's an amazing, like, you, to, if we could study it as social scientists, it's amazing. So when Farrakhan does something repugnant, everybody reacts. And I would posit that the Jewish community is giving Farrakhan and other anti-Semitic leaders like Farrakhan, and I'm going to talk about that in a second, too much power, number one. We have to stop giving them so much power. We have, to want, we have to understand how, if, if, if they are a flag for their community, right? Like if, if our concern about Farrakhan is our allies in the black and African-American community and are they like Farrakhan, the answer is black people know Farrakhan is a thug. Black people know Farrakhan is anti-Semite. We know he's a homophobe. And he's like the Queen of England. We have to put, or the, the, your terrible uncle, give me a minute, indulge me for a minute, we, ha we have to tolerate him until his, because he has no real power. This is the thing I want to say. He has no real power. I think he has a lot of power in the Jewish community because I'm very aware of how the Jewish community reacts. He does not have this kind of power in the African-American community. And so I, there's something for us to analyze in, in the question about, like, first of all, who are the real enemies out there? I'm not saying Farrakhan is not, or the, but I'm just saying we need to be really clear what makes somebody an enemy, and how much energy are we going to put into shutting them down? For our neighbors who are anti-Semitic, I mean, and, and anybody, who, I mean, I would say to anybody who supports Farrakhan, I would just be like, I can't get down with that. <laughs> you know, he's a thug, he's an anti-Semite, he's a misogynist, he's, you know, I just, like. That's okay for you to say that. If we cannot have perspectives about somebody who was publicly, outwardly anti-Semitic and vile in that way, then what can we talk about? The same way, like if I would say the same way that the chief uh, Sephardic rabbi of Israel called black people monkeys, the ADL called him out and right on for the ADL. The ADL was the only Jewish organization in the country to call him out. I thought that was very brave and right on. And it meant a lot to anybody who doesn't want to call black people monkeys. People of color, white people, whatever. So yeah, I mean, number one, we have a right to shut down anti-Semitism. And we need to be able to do that in collegial ways <clears throat> if it's somebody we're trying to maintain a relationship with. But if somebody is so on the margin that they cannot reflect our core community and interfaith community values, 
We need to be able to say something about that. We need to be able to have the skills to say it out loud, but absolutely we need to be able to say it. Then number two, you know, we need to be able to interrogate, like if I have a colleague that's you know, professing affection for Farrakhan, I'm gonna use an inquiry posture. Can you tell me about that? And then we're gonna talk about a conflict of values there. And then like as elevated leaders, we need to, there's a question about whether or not you can do good work with somebody who also respects somebody who has deeply questionable values. Um, and so no, I think there's a lot there, but I wanna say like the same way when I, you know, I worked with the JCR, I was a JCRC director for four years in the Bay Area in, in Northern California. And when I spend time on college campuses and the young people are talking about responding to anti-Semitism and they work in these progressive spaces and they sort of take a lot of lumps as Jews, um, I'm like, shut that down. Like, as Jewish people, we cannot give other progressive groups sort of a, um, a free ride in terms of being anti-Semitic or anti-Zionist in a context we're supposed to be in relationship and doing coalition building. And so we also have to talk about it. We have to give people skills. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, have a, I feel very strongly about it. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's, if, they're real, if you're real colleagues, real allies, there's a conversation to have. There's a bigger question. If anybody professes like unfettered love for Farrakhan, I just think there's a real question of judgment there. Yeah, that man does not deserve unfettered love. I'll tell you a funny story about the Women's March. Um, so three weeks ago, four weeks ago, I was in Detroit at the Facing Race Conference, and I had a 30-minute meeting with Linda Sarsour. Linda Sarsour, one of the founders of, yes. Yes, she and I had a 30-minute meeting together. And I mean, a couple of things I want to say, and this is related to your question. One is, I want to just, you know, for any one of us, the same way if we were in a disability rights conference and I went in and I wanted to talk about racism. Time and place is important, okay? So I wanna say that. I have questions about any international issue that is part of a domestic agenda. And so I have questions about like, just strategically, is it wise to try to talk about Zionism at the Women's March? I have questions about that because I want to talk about Zionism, right? I want to talk about Israel. I want to talk about what's going on. I want to talk about the US relationship to Israel as Jews. Like, I want to talk about all of that. I'm not sure then we can do that if we're trying to do that at the Women's March. And back to Rabbi Shmuley's question, you know, if any entity is overtly anti-Semitic, overtly anti-Zionist, overtly racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever, we have to have real questions about whether or not our community energy can be there. We have to have real questions about whether or not we can be validated as human beings while being there, right? Like, I want to feel whole while I'm out marching with my people. <laughs> if not, there's an irony there, isn't it? Um, and so all of those things, but you know, I want us to be less reactive, more strategic, um, and try to figure out, like, is there common ground? If there's common ground, how do we maintain that common ground? even if we have different perspectives, and then how do we unhinge from one another if somebody's just straight up vile, unacceptable, if we cannot be in community with them? Because that has to be okay too. Oh, about Linda Sarsour. So the irony is this. Before I went to this conference, okay, I'll be brief. Before I went to this conference, I realized that I was gonna bump into a radical political left that because I have worked for the Jewish Community Relations Council and the San Francisco Federation, I sort of come on the square side of the line. 
Um, and I realized my world were going to come crashing together at this conference. So I had this ongoing joke, just don't get into a picture with Linda Sarsour. Just don't get into a picture with Linda Sarsour. So then we're in a session, and one of the executive directors of Bend the Ark comes to me, sits in the back and says, you want to meet Linda? I said, I do want to meet Linda. So we're standing in the back of this after the session is over. We hug upon first meeting, and then we both stepped back and crossed our arms. And the entire time we were talking, <coughs> pardon me, our arms were crossed. We, 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 all, we had to. Like, like all the funders, everyone is in this room at this conference. And so we talked about Zionism specifically. And we talked about like how does she understand and hold this question of do the Jewish people have a right to a safe democratic state um, that's Jewish? And how do you hold that parallel to the fact that her family home was raised as part of Israel coming into formation? And she said, like, that's what I try to hold, is each one of you has a right to Zionism based on your own family history and your relationship with Israel. And my relationship is totally different. And I can't support an effort that would raise my family home, but I can support your understanding and commitment to a safe, democratic Israel. And they bump into each other, and they cancel each other out, but I can hold your reality and my reality at the same time. Um, that's how far we got in a public space, right? But I thought it was really, really interesting, and what it made me think was, okay, there's an opening for a conversation here, and that's what I'm interested in. I'll end by saying that somebody walked out of the door whom I had told this story, I just can't get into a picture with Linda Sarsour, and she walks out the door and goes, want me to take a picture of you on your way out? And I was like, please don't, because I will like, I, social media will eat me alive. Um, and so I think she's, I, I, I don't know her that well, I think she's um, rational, maybe reasonable, and I invited myself to another conversation, so I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, I mean, there's work for us to do, and as a Jew of color, I will say this by way of closing, that's something I can do is I can hold that space as a person of color who understands a worldview that she has. I can hold the space of, of having affection for my Jewish community and in the state of Israel. And we can see if we have any common ground. That's the work to be done. So, thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.